and welcome back to the Dreamcast. I am your host, Denise Walsh. I combine science, scripture, and stories that will inspire you to dive deep, break through your own personal glass ceiling, and design a life of your dreams. All right, big welcome back to the Dreamcast. So in this episode, I am really excited to dive in to the transformational story for one of my good friends. He has been listening to the podcast since its beginning. I've actually known him years prior. He was my RA in college and and I knew him through working in our business and I have known his love for people and his love for health and wellness. And when I started the Dreamcast, him knowing me and knowing the purpose and the vision for the Dreamcast, he said, I want you to interview. Like, I want to be interviewed. I want to share my story. And I said, okay, well, what do you want to talk about? And we scheduled a coffee date to just sit down and, and really dive into the transformation that he's experienced over the past decade, even beyond his love of people, beyond his love of health and wellness. I got to hear uh, really some divine interventions that happened in his life and, and how he has started the healing process, has healed um, on lots of different levels himself. And now he's come to a place where he is ready and excited to share his story with others. As you know, when you go through your own transformation, there's a lot of times this calling to share that because you know that somebody is back where you used to be. And so that Honestly, that coffee date could have been recorded. Uh, I was so moved and touched by his story, and I know that you will be too. So without further ado, I would love to introduce Carlos Kulas Dominguez to the Dreamcast. Awesome. Thank you so much, Denise, and for having me on here and for allowing me to just share my story, which I really um, pray that God just speaks through my experiences and share some love and hope. And I, like you said, I've been listening to your Dreamcast and I love the content and where you're going with it and just the way you're bringing people along for the journey that you've been on through their stories. Awesome. Awesome. Well, just so if you guys hear noise in the background, my handyman is outside mowing the lawn and he's just right now at my office window. <laughs> and I thought, is there a way that I can stop him right now. But no, we have six and a half acres and it needs to be mowed. So just so you know, if you hear that in the background, that's just part of life and the beauty of working from home. So Carlos, let's jump right into your story. I know the transition point is a rollover car accident. And and that, I mean, honestly, that for you was your wake up call. That was uh, the beginning of, of making a change. But I want our listeners to really get to know you before the car accident. And we'll spend a lot of time talking about that, what you experienced in the healing after. So tell us a bit about what life was like before that rock bottom moment. Sure. Um, I think before that moment where the transitions started happening for me, I, I think I had one of those mentalities that I was larger than life. And I was on this path where I just thought I was large and in charge. And I was on the path that I have always saw myself. Um, just kind of going back in a little bit about me, I grew up in inner city Detroit in a neighborhood that was um, a little challenging. There was violence, there was gangs, there were drugs, there was all kinds of life happening um, throughout that experience. And in that process, I just want to throw that out there because it's really important when we get to the, you know, to the rollover car accident. Um, I am also a gay out man. And growing up in that neighborhood, I didn't realize the impact that it was having on my identity, who I was. So my big purpose before all this was I'm just getting out of Detroit. I'm going to do something bigger and better. I am going to do it the way that I know best. and. For me, that was, um, you know, by being smart and by going to college, which led me to Grand Valley. And so before that accident, I really thought I had it all together. I had studied abroad. I had, I come from a really great family. I've set goals and I've met them, whether it was getting to college, getting out of Detroit, traveling abroad, 
um, coming out of the closet. There's just so many things. I thought, okay, I'm I'm doing this. This is happening, and there's nothing you know. There's nothing wrong with me. But little did I know that in the finer layers of the story I was creating of who I was, there was a lot of brokenness, and there was some um, a lot of hurt and some healing that needed to happen. And I just thought it was gonna, you know, if I ignored it and just kept living the way I was living, I, I'm I'm gonna be fine. So you honestly were at the top of your mountain at that time because you did get out of Detroit. You did go to college. You did succeed, quote unquote, and you, you met the goals that you that you hit. And so this larger than life attitude, um, it, it kind of took you into some cultures that that ended up not really benefiting you down the road. So when you say larger than life, what kind of things were you doing that you look back now and think that might not have been the best place for me to be? Um, great question. I think, you know, I think living in a world and not really recognizing where I came from, meaning that um, larger than life for me meant that I had a lot of personality. I was doing another interview with a friend and, and that was what she explained. She said, what I remembered about you during that time, which was before the car accident, was that I was leading the charge. I was out there with this big personality, um, you know, being whether it was being charming, whether it was leading big movements within um, at Grand Valley, um, even just in my own personal goals of, of giving back and, and and volunteering through um, different opportunities with homeless or LGBT centers. I just thought that's what I'm going to do. So what, what do I have to work on for myself? You know, this is going to be about other people, about me serving other people. And so that was my larger than life attitude that I had. And again, I, I now know that it was a way of just really running and hiding from the things that I needed to unpack. Okay. So your eyes were focused outward, um, meaning you were serving, you were doing good things, but yet there was something restless going on inside. So tell us a little bit about the car accident and, and, uh, and that rock bottom moment. Yeah. So I think that, um, I think it's important to share that in that large than life mentality, you know, I think you live that one life, but then when you have all these, this, these dark places inside of you, you know, there's a secret life. And that secret life for me was definitely, um, you know, people would see one thing, but at night or on um, a weekend, I, I joined a fraternity. So I think that's important. I was a part of a fraternity. So that was one of those escapes for me because we would get together and you're partying and drinking and drinking lets you just kind of be another person. And I never thought about that as being a problem. And that's going to become important when I get deeper into the story. But I would go clubbing. I became a bartender. I, I did all these things that um, let me kind of just live in a world that wasn't really aligned with um, where I needed to be. So I remember at the time of the car accident, like I said, I had all these accomplishments that I could, you know, just check off and think, yeah, this is great. But I, I can go out and do what I want. And so um the car accident specifically happened during a time where I was feeling pretty lost when I think back now. Of course, then I didn't think so because I had a great um, job, good income, great family, all those things. But the part that I wasn't dealing with was my um, my, my secret demons, you know, it, which led to recovery. And that's my car accident. I, I'm actually having a hard time sharing this, Denise. <laughs> so... Ask your question again, please. Yeah, no problem. Well, and I think that there's a reason why you, I never knew this story before we talked um, at our coffee date. Like you haven't really been loud about this because it's not easy to talk about yet. There's part of you that's really ready. And, and I know yeah. that because you wouldn't have asked me to share this story several times if there wasn't a part of you that said, this is part of the next step for my healing. So sure. the car accident, you had a weekend out. And as you said, you had this like success identity, but yet on the weekends or at night, it was clubbing, it was partying, it was staying out late, it was doing all the things that probably somebody who thinks they're invincible does. You know, you're out late, you're... you're clubbing the night away, living life. Um, but then you got in the car and, and we're driving home the next morning. Yeah. 
but you didn't make it home. No. And and you're absolutely right. I, I thought I was invincible and I had done that so many times where I would go out and just party all night, you know, drinking, just having fun, being with people, you know, the things that I normally do, the, the, the person that you know me now is, you know, being social. And this particular night I had actually worked a solid day of, of um, at the bar. And then I drove out to another club after work and spent the entire evening just hanging out with um, friends, meeting new people. And it was seven in the morning on Labor Day morning. And this was in 2004. And I remember thinking, oh, it's time to go home. I feel fine. I hop in my car. I've done this a hundred times before. And um, even knowing that maybe I hadn't been drunk at the time, because I didn't feel that, but I knew that I was tired and, and I've driven tired many times. And I think, well, I'll just pull over. Well, this was one of those moments where I thought, no, I'm making it home. And I should add that I was giving a friend a ride home because he had been left at the club um, that night too. And so driving back at seven in the morning and it was a rainy Labor Day morning, I had fallen asleep at the wheel. And I remember waking up and overcompensating to I hit a barrel. I hit a barrel on the um, left side of the road and overcompensated because it startled me. And that just changed the trajectory of my life. I went up the side of the freeway and the car ended up going upright. We just missed the beam of an overpass. So we went through that little small space of an overpass, if you can picture that. And car was upright, landed on its side, and we were ended up upside down, hanging. Thank God the seatbelt was on um, for me. And thank God my friend, I had closed the sunroof because my friend did not have his seatbelt on. And normally I would drive up my sunroof. So there's just all these things. In that moment, things slow down and you just can remember vividly, at least your version of what the vividly was. And we were upside down um, on the other side of the overpass. And I remember the first thing was just making sure that, that he was okay. You know, I, I'm responsible for this person in my car. And then um, just making sure that we're still breathing and we're upside down. And th the one thing I do remember so clearly, though, is um, praying. I just went into this instant state of prayer, just asking God to just let me live through this. Please give me a chance to do right. Give me a chance to, you know, uh, unpack whatever it is that's put me in this position. And then I remember asking very, very specifically, let me see my niece one more time. Because at that time, we ha I had one niece. And now I have 10 nieces and nephews. But as we're upside down, and my friend is just like laying on the roof, um, like I said, the sunroof was closed. Had that not been closed, I don't want to even imagine what could have happened. Um, and then there's a man that comes and breaks the windows to get us out, because there was no way we were going to get out. And I remember getting out of the car, crawling out and um, talking to the man. And he's just asking, do you even know what happened? And I'm like, yeah, this is what happened. And he said, well, yeah, that's about right. But do you realize how you should be dead? Like, I remember him saying, you should be dead. But you missed that being probably by inches because he witnessed the entire thing. And all I could say, respond to him was, where are the kids that were there? And he's like, what are you talking about? And I remember hanging upside down, seeing two little children. It was a boy and a girl, probably about six, seven in that age group. And I, I mean, they, they had brown hair. I remember them just standing there, like right next to each other. And I asked him several times, but where are the kids? Are the kids okay? Are the kids okay? And all he could tell me was, I think that you're imagining those things. I'm like, no, no, no. There were two kids. And that's when just this peace came over me. I don't, I mean, in that moment, you're just in shock anyway. But I remember this calming feeling of peace because I just thought those are just my angels. Those, those were two angels that were sent to protect both of us in that car that night, that morning. And um, to this day, I won't forget those faces. I, I don't remember what that man's face looks like, but I remember what those two kids' faces look like. And mm -hmm. then the rest of the night, you know, like, the cops come and you get taken away and we can get into that more, but that, that was that moment. So that was a moment where you knew 
that, I mean, what was your faith like before this moment? You know, I've always considered myself to be very spiritual. I, you know, I did go to church here and there. I knew that I I was raised um, Catholic and I went to a Catholic school for part of my schooling. So that was just a piece of who I was, but I never understood what my relationship with God was. And, and that has always been a struggle for me up until that point because I didn't feel like I had a place where I belonged being a gay male and trying to figure out all of those layers of identity and growing up in the neighborhood that I did, like I mentioned, and in a family that, you know, everybody is got a husband or wife and their kids. Like I wanted to be like everybody else. So I didn't think that I had a real place with, um, with God at that time. Um, but he quickly opened a door during that experience. Mm. So, I mean, even throughout that, you, you know, thought about God, but, and, and you had, you know, experiences or you know times at church, but, but it was this moment seeing those two little kids where that peace came over you. And it seems like your eyes and heart were open, knowing that, that God was exactly there taking care of you. Yeah, I think um, it it wouldn't, I wasn't prepared for the amount I was going to learn about how much God had been present for many other moments Wow. prior to that. Because like I said, I was larger than life. I mean, that's just one example. That's just one, that's just the big story that was the turning point. But there were so many other stories of, and once we, you know, when I get into the addiction piece, um, that that my addiction led me to do so many things that I know now that God was there watching over me and sparing my life in so many ways. Wow. Okay. So your, your heart and eyes are open. I mean, there's just like peace. There's this something changes, you know, your, your perspective mm-hmm. shifts during this rock bottom moment. Um, but then you go, I don't know, do you go to the hospital? Do you go to jail? Like what happens next? Yeah. So for me, um, they gave me the option to go to the hospital, but in my mind, it, it's actually, that's really an interesting question because I remember thinking in that moment, I don't deserve to go to the hospital. Like I just created this situation, you know, and, and God just saved my life. And I had one little scratch and I felt fine. I thought to myself, I don't really deserve to go to the hospital. Like just take me to jail, you know? And I remember signing away and, and saying, yeah, I'm not going to go to the hospital make sure that I was safe and healthy. Just take me to jail, you know, get this, and put, put me where I belong, so to say. Um, and it is a very humbling experience being handcuffed and put into the back of a car. Uh, uh, you know, it was state troopers. And um, I remember just holding it together the best that I can. And one of those officers said, it's okay. These We all make mistakes. And I just lost it in the back of their car. You know, I was sobbing and praying and um, lost and think scared. I mean, every feeling you can imagine. And then, um, you know, but the two most overwhelming feelings that you get in an experience like that is you are, it, it, and this is if you're open to it. Cause I, I met since my time in after this and going to recovery and 12 steps and so many different meetings that many people don't learn and they're not open to it. But me, I was humbled and I felt so much humility. And then they take you to that jailhouse and they're booking you and asking questions. And that's when they, you know, they make you breathe and find out, you know, where exactly just the whole thing. And, um, I just remember looking around in that jailhouse plate thinking to myself, wow, do I really belong here? Like, how did I get myself here? Like all those questions that you've been avoiding all living that larger than life, um, lifestyle, you know, you don't, ask any of those questions. And then they, they throw you into a holding cell with, I, 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 there are probably at least 40 other men in this holding cell and there's nothing attractive about it. it it's one toilet, completely open, smelly, dirty. Every form of person is in that room. And all I'm thinking is how am I going to survive this? You know? Wow. I love I love that in the midst of you, number one, feeling grateful for being spared, feeling God with you, at, like for maybe one of, the, one of the most clearest times that the police officer offered you grace and just said, we all make mistakes. I can imagine that at that, you know, you're just 
your guard is down. <laughs> I, can, I would be bawling my eyes out too. So you're in the holding cell with 40 other guys. Um, and this is really when you say, okay, is this the life that I want? What do I want? Like you really start to question what brought you here. Did you have any aha moments um, besides that throughout the holding cell and then being booked or then released? You know, I, I think my first aha moment in, in that holding cell was um, what do I need to do differently? You know, what is it that I need to do to make a different choice? There's a reason that I got here and I still didn't even know why that I was there. You know, I mean, I knew for the practical reasons how I got there, but I didn't realize the amount of layers that were beneath that of what led me to that place. Um, so that was, I, I just knew it was going to be a long process. So that was an aha moment for me. Like, okay, what does this mean? And where do I go next? And how, how am I going to figure it out? Um, and I think the other aha moment to me was I wasn't larger than life and I was nowhere near in charge of driving that vehicle literally. And, you know, um, spiritually in, in any way, like I needed to let go. And that was what that happened. That was a huge, just everything, all those curtains pull back and, and you realize, all right, I need to, um, just let this process happen and not try to control it. Cause you're, right away you're thinking, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to get out of this? You know? And that's just not how it works. Yeah. Now, Al, I'm just so curious. Did you talk to anybody? <laughs> like, What do you guys do? What do you do? You just sit no. on the floor? Like, how does it work? Absolutely. I know I, I can only speak for me because some people look very comfortable there. <laughs> so I walked in freaking out because you walk into this, this jailhouse and in this particular jailhouse, like their, their holding cells are all glass. So everybody's like, can see you. And, and, and all I remember thinking is, please don't put me in that one. Please don't put me in that one. Cause they like the, those men were just staring you down and it was scary. So I remember when they put me in the one and, and, it, and I remember some people still being at the glass, but it wasn't the other ones that looked scary, but it looked extremely, um, I, I was scared to go in there. So I remember them putting me in there and I scouted where am I going to find my spot to sit? And I was looking at each person in there, everything from, you know, do they smell? Do they look like they're going to hurt me? Do they, are they going to try to engage with me? Are they going to, all those things they are going through your head. And I just found the one person that, that I just looked like would like me. That's what you're looking for. Who in here is like me? And you don't even know their story. And that's what I did. I remember finding a little corner by, uh, I don't remember his name, but he about the same age. I sat over there. He was passed out at the time, I believe. And I just sat in the corner. And as I got settled and, and let, just feeling a little bit more like, well, this is just where I'm at and I'm not going anywhere because they don't let you call anybody. Like the, I didn't have that option at that time. And I, so this is a little self-serving, but I remember thanking God at that moment too, that they, they take everything from you. They take your socks, your shoes, belts, you have nothing except for the clothes that you are wearing. And they would even take off the layers if you had more than one layer. And I did have that on, and they, for some reason, did not take away my um, shirt because I had another t-shirt underneath. And I remember taking that shirt off and just covering my face with it for the next 24 hours. Cause I think I was there for at least 24 hours. Um, and I did talk to the guy next to me. Finally, he woke up and, and that was just one of those moments too, where it's like, you know what, even in that space, you need a friend, you know, and, and he was my friend for that time. So. All right. And, and you're the guy that was in the car with you, he went to the hospital he's, is he okay? I just want to make sure that we clean that up before we move on. Okay. No, for sure. He, um, uh, another humbling experience, they leave you, they leave whoever's with you there. Like they're on their own. So he, they left him on the side of the road. He was safe, no injuries, nothing was wrong with him. Um, but, but I can say though, it, it is a heart-wrenching experience because you feel so responsible. I remember being taken away and there was nothing I could do for him. So yeah, they left him there and it wasn't my problem and it wasn't their problem. So I had to wait until I was 
home and able to reach out and make sure that he even made it home safely. Okay. Okay. So, so you're booked, you're in jail, um, and now you're sentenced to probation and all of the things that happen. Um, tell me, tell me what your, like, what did the court say was mandated for you for recovery? Yeah. So if you, you know, I, before we even get to the court, I think it's important, you know, just coming out and, and carrying that weight of who do you, who are you going to call for help? You know, like you feel helpless and, um, and just not even prepared. So I remember getting the court date set. Actually, I remember having to make that call to my parents first, you know, and letting them know, Hey, this happened. And I didn't even let my mom know for a couple of days because I knew what that would do to her. And my grandparents found out first and came. And I remember them rolling up in, in front of the house and get coming outside to greet them. And again, just losing everything. I just lost it. I was bawling and crying and they're there to comfort. And thank God I had such amazing family in, in general, but they came but what I wasn't prepared for is they wanted to see the car and I hadn't seen the car since, you know, the accident. And they drove me to go and see this car and get pictures and because they wanted to see what happened. And again, that was just the second, one of those second moments where you're like, God, thank you. You know, thank, thank you for sending my grandparents and thank you for saving my life that I could even take them to show this because it hurt them, you know, and, um, they were there for a few days to just kind of be there to comfort me and, and to walk me through the process and to, to not judge. And they had always been that way, but then they, it came to the time to let my mom know. And, um, she couldn't even come. She, she, she never, she still doesn't know what that car looks like. It's one thing she's chosen to not ever have to see or witness, but that led to, um, court. So my grandparents came for court. My dad came for court. My mom still wasn't ready. Um, we hired an attorney because it was very much advised to get an attorney. And thank God I did. They were, um, it's one of, again, though, it's kind of like that moment I already described to you when they give you the choice to go to the hospital or go straight to the jail. I'm thinking, well, I don't deserve an attorney. You know, like, I mean, I did this, you know, and I've always been one of those people like I did it. Let me, you know, get my punishment. But I did what I was told and they got an attorney and they were able to drop the charges down. I mean, at first it was a uh, driving under the influence and then it changed to a DWI. So it was driving while intoxicated or something less, but it didn't mean that they weren't going to throw it, everything at you. I, I remember sitting there and you feel like, I mean, you are, and I think you're supposed to, if you're in the right space, but you feel like a total criminal. I mean, the judge asks every question you can imagine about the night and what led to it. And, um, and it's a cattle call. So everybody's there to listen to your story and another humbling experience, but he gave me everything. I had to go to AA meetings. I had to go to seek a therapist. I had a probation officer that I had to meet with. Um, I believe it was monthly or I had to meet with him regularly um, I lost my license for at least two years. Um, I wasn't allowed to drive for that first part of it. So everything changes. It, I mean, they took away all of that, not to mention the cost that are, you know, so they, everything that he could do, he did. Um, I had to, I was required to get letters of reference if I wanted to get off probation from, you know, to speak to my character. Um, and that's, that was, I think that was pretty much everything. Um, that he gave me. So, so tell me about your first meeting at AA. And so it's interesting because at this point, you know, you were humbled. You were like, okay, like apparently I have something to learn. I don't want to be in this situation again, but you didn't necessarily recognize yourself as being addicted or having a problem. Yeah. It was just happened this way. So there is a bit of, um, I'm interested to see the process where you where you start to internalize sure. it a little bit, because I think most people who do go to AA aren't quite sure that they really have a problem yet. And so it seems like you were in that yep. space too. 
Absolutely. I was a hundred percent in that space. I figured, you know, I made a mistake. I'm going to pay for it. Let's get this over with. And, you know, I'm going to do what's right. And like I had mentioned, God showed up for the accident. I did not realize that God wasn't done. Um, so, you know, got a therapist, was working with a therapist. Um, and then the AA meetings, you know, they, the sentence was specifically, I think I had to go to um, six, 90, 90 meetings in 60 days. I mean, it's something like ridiculous. And then, and I, and now I know why. And you don't have a car. Um, and you don't have a car. Right. Granted they, they do make exceptions that you can, I, I had a restricted for a little bit. Okay. So, I so was you able could drive to, drive, to the meetings, but that wasn't right away. Okay. So at first I was, you know, taking the bus, right. I learned public transportation very well during this entire process. Um, even from going to, to visit, I mean, I couldn't go I, I should add too, I wasn't allowed to go to any functions that had alcohol. Couldn't go to family functions that if there were going to be alcohol. I mean, they were very specific with what I could and could not do. And as you said, I mean, I've always been one of those people. Like I only usually need to learn something once. And I tend to be a rule follower, even though it's kind of ironic because I was driving. And that's the rule not to drive while you're drinking, right? So, um, but the AA part, I was totally... And I think most people in that situation are, I was very bitter and not happy that I had to go. Cause in my mind, I'm asking myself, well, why do I have to do that? I don't drink every day. I don't go and party every day. I'm not in this situation. I, I made the wrong choice that one time, but I'm a rule follower. So I went to my very first AA meeting. It was at the um, Alano club over on um, in our area here uh, off of college, it's like the biggest one in Grand Rapids that I'm aware of. It's got years of sobriety. Um, it's a large group. I think there were probably close to 50 to 60 people at this first meeting. But I remember walking into that first meeting and I think that that was more scary than going to the jailhouse. Um, Cause you, one, you don't know what you're walking into and the, the, People there looked extremely rough. I, I mean, I just looking for a seat was nerve wracking and not knowing what to expect from this meeting was nerve wracking. I just knew that I had to be there. And that day was, again, one of those moments when God showed up. Um, it was with he, he was preparing me um, to be in that place. I went to that meeting and I heard stories of pain. I heard stories of anger. I heard stories of uh, hopelessness. I mean, there were so many stories because when you go to your first meeting, for those people who might not have ever been to a 12-step, they call it the first step meeting. So you're, everybody's sharing their story of how they got there and why they're there. And just hearing these stories, I just thought, wow, um, I can see myself in that person. I can't see myself in this person. I remember thinking, well, to myself, oh, I don't need to learn the hard way because that person has had been here like back, sent back here four times and they've killed three people, you know? Like the stories were crazy in my mind to, to process, but it didn't change the fact that I sat there so closed. I sat there so unwilling to want to share. I, I knew I wasn't going to share because they give you the option. And I said, I'm here because I have to, and I'm not like any of you, you know? Um, so I'm going to sit through this meeting and I'm going to get through it. And who knows if I'm coming back. And that was the first meeting. Um, and luckily I had an amazing probation officer who was willing to give me a list of so many other meetings to check out. And that's what I started doing after that first meeting. I don't believe I ever went back to that place because I just, I, I couldn't identify. I, I needed to, somebody told me to find a meeting where you can relate and that you're going to feel at home somewhat at home, um, which now I understand what that meant because you might feel comfortable. You might find people you relate to, but you don't feel at home because it's all about the work that you have to do. So how, tell me about the, I mean, the AA, you go sure. through a bunch of different meetings, but the layers eventually start to, you start to soften up, you start to open up. Yeah. What are some of the transformations or aha moments you had throughout the AA experience? Absolutely. I think after going to so many different meetings, um, I went to meetings over at Grand Valley State and 
And obviously, you know, there's a lot of college kids that are there and they have no clue they're, they're, that, that they have a problem. You know, it, they were living that larger than life mindset that I was coming from. Um, but I met some of those leaders of that group and to hear that they've had 13 years of sobriety, it's like, wow. And, and they're thriving. Um, maybe I need to listen more. Um, so that's what I did for three months. I remember going to these meetings. I would juggle between one at Grand Valley and one at a church. And the one at Grand Valley, like I said, was full of college kids and some and some older men with sobriety. And they had probably 50 plus years of sobriety between them. And then I found another group that was at a church and it was um, LGBT focused. And, and that was super, super, super powerful. Um, one second, I'm sorry. And the cool part about that was um, it was an LGBT group that I was able to find at the church. And, and that was a layer that I wasn't prepared for. You know, I didn't really connect that my, well, I wasn't even ready to learn that I had a drinking problem. Um, so after going for three months, I finally shared for the first time. And I remember it was a first step meeting and I was just sharing how I got there. and. I, I rushed through how I got there and you're, and you don't tell them everything. And it, that first sharing it, you're, it's pretty pathetic actually, because there's so many layers to peel back and I wasn't ready to let them know that I, um, I was drinking so I can escape so that I could be my authentic self. I wasn't ready to share that I was out there partying and getting myself into a place or to a mindset that allowed me to let my inhibitions go. I wasn't sharing so many of the, my, the secret life that I had been hiding that I didn't even know that I was hiding really. Um, but it took me three months of going to meetings and just literally saying, hi, my name is Carlos and I'm sentenced to be here, you know, or hi, my name is Carlos and I'm learning about recovery. Not once would I say that I'm an alcoholic though, um, because I just wasn't in that space. The first time, I mean, it seems like the first time you share the story, you graze over it. But the more you share your story, the more layers that are peeled back and you realize there was a reason why you were partying it up and living larger than life um, because there was a lot of insecurity. And like you mentioned, identity issues that you really weren't um totally comfortable with or you didn't really own it all 100% of the way or there was something where you felt like you couldn't be that and, and be your authentic self in normal life and you had to escape in order to, to be it. So identity is or identifying kind of the, the, at the heart of the issue is one thing, but then healing has to start. And I know that you love like you're, we're always still healing and growing and learning and all of that. Um, but you have really healed quite a bit and, and transformed throughout these years. Tell me a little bit about first identifying what, what even, you know, the deeper layers were, but then also the healing process. Yeah. So um, I, when I finally opened up to recovery and started one identifying with other people who are similar um, that was an important piece for me, but the, the more, the deeper part was when I started allowing God in, um, if you're not familiar with, with 12 steps, I mean, it's very much about connecting with your higher power and God, and they flip between uses of like di different words for God. But at the end of the day, it, it is about connecting with something bigger than yourself, higher, higher power. And that's when that's when I knew that God was on this journey with me and I thought, okay, AA, I can beat this. You know, I can, I can, I can get this under control. You know, I stopped drinking. I, it's not like, I, I mean, over my lifetime, I, I stopped drinking caffeine when I was 16. I don't do pork. I can give this up. No big deal. Um, and I did. So I just said no more drinking. And um, I thought I got this beat. And then you start going to these meetings and you start hearing other people's stories. And then you, you know, eventually if, if you're really in that space to let God work, then you start picking up the books and start reading and you start working the steps. 
And so that first moment for me was just surrendering that I was powerless. You know, I'm powerless over this and let's figure out what, what is this about? So the more I got into um, AA, I started to peel back those layers and realizing, oh, you know, alcohol has been a symptom of a larger issue. Alcohol has been my vice to escape or to, to live a different life. And things started to make more sense, you know, and, and God started showing up more and more and, and holding my hand saying, okay, let's take this next step. Let's take this next step. And some of those steps could be um, just figuring, unfolding, like, why have you lost three days of your life because you're indulged in this addictive behavior? So after several years, though, I think it was close to three years of being in AA and and working through some of those and, and realizing what alcohol meant to me and in my life, I started coming to realizing, oh, wait, there's so many other recovery programs. There's so many other addictions out there. And I still couldn't accept that um, alcohol was a huge problem. Granted, I was able to not drink and it made a world of difference. And I learned how to be social with, uh, without being under the influence. You know, I learned how to be fun and, and be that larger than life personality without drinking. I mean, I had to relearn so many different things and, and be okay with that. But the part that I um, wasn't, the part that I didn't know that God was working was really getting to the deeper stuff. And that was with sex addiction. And that, you know, it, it, that's why I was out that night. I, you know, I was out that night when the day of the car accident happened because I was living that second life and I was, I drank enough so that I could do it and be in a world that I, God was not wanting me to be in. And so that led me to really get diving into recovery and first step or to um, 12 steps. And then you found groups focusing on that and started healing that area. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and again, that was through a lot of prayer and surrendering and um, just going through the first step, admitting that you're powerless and that your life is unmanageable. All the things that you learn in 12 steps that sound so cliche and so silly, or you just think to yourself, shut up. Like, this is too much, you know, it, it, and the, yet there's so much truth behind a lot of that, a lot of the steps. So I remember it was like going to my first meeting again. I thought, okay, I never, you, you, once you go to your first meeting, you go, I never have to do this again, you know, and it just gets easier and easier and easier going. And like I said, you learn to share and you connect and you meet people. And well, I remember getting to this new thing and I was working with my sponsor in AA and she said, you know, I, I really think it's time to, um, to find the next thing. Like, what is the next thing? And as we were peeling back layers, and so I had to go and find a group for um, sex addicts and that, you know, they call that SAA. And it was horrible. It was worse than going to AA. It was worse than being sentenced to it, but it made, it opened a world for me of that. I knew, okay, God, walk me through this, you know, walk me through this. I I'm holding out my hand. And I remember finding that first meeting and a friend actually went with me. A friend drove me and sat through this meeting and all I could think of my head, um, and I just saw her for the first time in eight years, a couple of weeks ago, I said, you know, why would you do that? Like, that's just crazy, you know? And um, she said, because I knew you needed healing. You know, I knew that you needed to figure the next thing out. And, um, and I sat through that meeting and it was this, just like sitting to that first AA meeting. You're looking at the people. I don't identify with this person. Oh, no, that person's just crazy. And, you know, you're all these things that you allow yourself to be distracted by. And at the end of the day, it's really about why am I here? You know, God, why are we here today? And what am I supposed to take away from this? And that started a whole new path for me of just digging deep and healing and uncovering things. and. And I'm still doing it. So when you say healing, tell me a little bit about what that means. Um, does it mean acceptance? Does it mean feeling peaceful? Does it mean forgiveness yourself and others? What, is, what does healing mean? Do you know, I think, I think 
Number one for me for the healing is just knowing that I belong. You know, I, I think I shared earlier that growing up, all I wanted to feel was like that I belonged. I wanted to feel like I belonged in my neighborhood when I was nothing like the other kids. And again, thank God that I wasn't because I didn't want to be in drugs and gangs and all that other stuff. But, um, you know, going to my family, I, I wanted to be like my brothers and my cousins, you know, we have a large family. So just belonging and, and, and going into school and going to a Catholic school, knowing that I was always very, I knew I was different. I knew I wasn't like everybody else. So that healing needed to happen. And, um, and I think that's by drinking, drinking, I, I learned after going to recovery is that the alcohol for me was a symptom of the larger addiction. You know, it, it was the vehicle that allowed me to, um, belong. And so that, that had to happen. The sense of just healing and knowing that I belong and there is a place for me. And then I think the other piece was, um, I didn't realize how important it was for me to, to have God in my life. Like that relationship had to heal. Um, going to a Catholic school and being picked on at a Catholic school is damaging, you know? Um, and then seeing my siblings and friends getting married and having kids and having, you know, church be a part of their life in these different communities. So my relationship with God had to heal. And I, I, I still wasn't, even though we were walking together, I wasn't willing to have those conversations with him. You know, I wasn't willing to partner with him fully. And it wasn't until recovery and then getting into SSAA that, that that became more important. Like I knew that that relationship had to be rebuilt. Um, so that was, that was another area of healing. And I think um, the last big area of healing for me is just forgiving myself. You know, I, when you go through 14 years of recovery, you realize so many of the things that you did, whether that to yourself or to other people and whether those people even know, or you know that you've done to yourself, like the, it, it's deep and, um, and it's, it's a journey. Yeah. That is one of the steps, isn't it? To forgive yourself, but then also to ask for forgiveness because I know throughout, um, and you know, with, with the addiction, there's times when you felt guilt or shame or done things that you regret later and things like that. So I'm tell me a little bit about who you had to for, forgive or did you have to go to anybody and say, I'm sorry. And who did, who did you choose? And how did that, what did that look like? Um, wow. All of the above. <laughs> um, you know, I think there, there's no linear process. I think you learn that even though it's laid out as a 12 step thing, you, it's not linear. Um, so I think that the, the first, you know, the first forgiveness I had to start with was, um, I think I had to learn to forgive the people that I was carrying hurt from, like the, the people I was hurt by, whether it was a past relationship, um, and having those conversations. I, I can remember one of them. I remember one of the one guy that I dated, and this was early on, it was like my senior year of high school. And I didn't realize how damaging that was. Um, but years later and after recovery and to learn that he was in recovery later, you know, I remember spending time with him. It was probably 12 years. Like it had been 12 years. And for me to share with him what I experienced while we were dating and, and how I had to forgive and work through those things, not even knowing if I'd ever see him again or talk to him again, it just happened that it aligned. But then to hear him say he didn't remember any of it. You know, he didn't remember any of the hurt and the pain. And, and it was very serious and real, which is why he's in recovery. But um, in that moment, I thought, wow, he didn't even know. Like, like, but hearing it and for him to have that grace. So, you know, there, there's that. And then there's countless, like, you know, family and friends that you, your list just gets bigger and bigger. And I still, I'm still working through my list. I just had one of those experiences uh, about a month ago of somebody who I hurt deeply in college that we finally had that moment where I could, I could say, I'm sorry. And she was in a space to receive it. And it, it wasn't that I hadn't tried before, but I hurt her in a way that it was totally because of my um, addiction. You know, I re I remember vividly hurting her, telling her, 
that I don't really ever need to see you again and be your friend anymore. And she had done nothing wrong. She was an amazing friend and she was loving and caring. And she dealt with me when I showed up at her door in those state of minds of drinking. Like she saw all of that. And um, recovery helped me realize like, wow, I wasn't in a space to be loved, you know? And she was one of those people who was willing to. And to have to come back and apologize for that was um, a powerful moment. And there's lots of those stories. Um, I remember having to come back to my sister. I remember driving cross country with her in um, in the height of all the addiction. And we were staying in um, Las Vegas and she was probably 16 at the time. And I'm thinking, oh, she's fine and she's sleeping. And I left her at the hotel room to go and, and do what I do with addiction and to meet some stranger, you know, and, um, granted in, in this, and I, and I had drank before that, you know, get, get myself into that mindset that I'm a whole different new person, different person and left her there thinking she's fine. And not knowing, like not, not knowing what I know now that gosh, what a scary situation to be left in as a 16 year old. Cause she couldn't find me and I wasn't answering my phone and, and she's walking around this hotel where anything could have happened to her in Vegas, right? And having that conversation is not enjoyable, but it is very freeing because um, it, it's the only way healing happens, you know? And, and, and they can choose not to forgive you, you know? That's something I've had to accept because there's people who have chosen not to forgive me. And it's extremely hard to live with. Forgiveness is such a, it's, you know, I want to say heavy topic, but yet when you go through that process and you make amends and you can forgive yourself, there's so much on the other side that allows you to live your life with more emotional freedom. Absolutely. Now you've said a few times that God kept showing up. God kept showing up. He kept leading you to the next next best step or leading you along the way. Um, what are, what are some times when you felt God show up and you were like, okay, I'm, I'm either doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm taking the right next step. My relationship with him is growing and I'm seeing him more and more in my everyday life. Absolutely. You know, if I think back, um, so the accident happened in 2004. So this is what, 14 years later. Um, God shows up for me every day in the sense that you think that you can just stop recovery. I mean, the, the part, there's part of you when you're in recovery that you just want to, at least for me, like, when is it, when am I done? You know, when am I done? And you get comfortable. You get comfortable when you have years of sobriety under you that there's those moments where you're like, oh, I can do this again. And And you go and try to do that again, whatever that activity was that led you to that path. And you realize, yeah, God's here putting all those things right in front of me again. Like you you can't do that again. You know, I, you can't go out and party like you used to. You can't go out to this club that you used to go to. You can't hang out with certain people that you used to because it just, it's still there. So God shows me up daily to put those, to put that tape in for me, you know, because Again, it's so easy for me to want to be in charge. It's so easy for me to want to be like, oh, I'm, I can manage my life. You know, it's, it, it's gone and it's not, it's there. I can, I can still fall into those dark spaces, but I think even more powerful for me is having that addictive personality. I is so easy for me to get distracted. It's so easy for me to let life you know, those moments of life that are full of anxiety or whatever it is that triggers me to get into that space. God shows up for me knowing that I don't have to go down that road again. God shows up and gives me the courage or the strength or the ability to be honest or the ability to me to say, Hey, Denise, I want to do this interview, you know, because it's part of my healing. It's part of my recovery. And I, I I think I told you before we started this, I'm like scared to death to do this, but in my heart this morning, I remember thinking, I don't want to do this interview. I think I could just cancel. I don't think that I'm ready to do this. But God showed up this morning. He He showed up and said, you know what? Just let leave it to me to, to carry you through this. Um, so those are some of the tangibles with recovery. 
but I think that God also has shown up in all those other areas that I talked about with healing. Like I know I belong, you know, I, I went through that quest of trying to find the right church family. I've been, I hopped around so many times and I landed in this place with, of knowing that, wait, God, this is between you and I, like, this is a relationship for you and I to be in. And I'm not, and I don't need to seek the validation from a church community or from a pastor or for, from friends or family. Like this is a personal relationship. And that has been extremely powerful and liberating. And it's also very challenging because sometimes we don't agree, you know, and that's been kind of a love. You and God don't agree. Yeah, absolutely. Not. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wait a minute. That's not what I want to do. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> Even this interview, he's he's pulling your heartstrings to do it, and yet the mind says, "Wait a minute, this is a bit scary." Absolutely. And then he just sends those messages of like, "Yeah, you said you don't want to be in the driver's seat anymore." Um, so those are some of the ways. And then I think the biggest way he shows up for me, if you want to look in like in the real world, is just the amount of people he puts in my path that are so accepting and so loving and, and let me know that it's okay to be my authentic self and to be um, doing, you know, just that belonging that, that I was talking about. And, and that that's really powerful. I mean, knowing where I came from and the things that I've done and, and, and the fact that people are still there is, is powerful. Mm, I love that. I think at the end of the day, as humans, we all want to mean something to someone and be be loved and then provide value back into that community. And I feel like you do such an amazing job of creating community yourself. Carlos is always the first one to show up and help and um, get people together. And I mean, there's a reason why you have found a place to belong. And part of it is because God has led you to those people and you've taken action there. You know, you've showed up and and been the person that people want to be around. And, and you make everybody feel like they're welcome. And you are one of those people that sees the wallflower person and goes and, and is their friend. And everybody feels that larger than life attitude from you in such a pure, fun, accepting, like heart open type of way. And to know the hurt that you've been through, to know the healing that you've experienced I didn't know the story prior to our coffee date and I would never have guessed it. So Carlos, I just want to, to, I know we've got a few more questions, but I just want to acknowledge you for taking those steps and for being open eventually to working through the layers of hurt that you've experienced because of the healing that you've done. You are now an open person. And because you are, you know, your heart is open, meaning that your eyes are up and you're, 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 you just kind of radiate this love and you make so many other people feel like they belong. So I want to say thank you to you. Whew, now I'm getting emotional um, because you are providing that space for others to do their own healing as well, whether you know it or whether they know it or not because of, the belongingness that you create. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. And I just want to say thank you for that reminder because, you know, I take it for granted that I've been in recovery and I just assume that people know, you know, and, and I forget, it's so easy to forget that it's easy to hide, you know, and when you mm -hmm. start hiding, that's when you're walking that dangerous space. And, um, so thank you for the opportunity to just to share. So why now? Why after 14 years of going through um, your life? I mean, you now are married. You have solid relationships. You've got solid community. You are um, taking steps to, I mean, you've, you've done so much work inwardly and outwardly. Why now are you ready to share your story? You know... I don't have a concrete answer for that. 
I, I know that it's just something that has been on my heart. It's something that I've been resisting. It's something that I um, struggle with. And just over the last few years and, and working with you in so many capacities, living outside of that comfort zone and knowing what happens when you live out of that comfort zone, I feel that it's important. But I think if I'm truly raw and honest about it too, I think it's part of my next step. You know, it's part of my next step of owning that, you know, the addiction and, and cause it's a daily struggle. I've, I've, I know I've probably shared with you that, I mean, I've, I lose days where it's like, I want to be in, in this alternate world, what, whether it's like in a chat room or, you know, just going to certain events, whatever it is, whatever it is that triggers it. Um, but I'm in this space. I've been in this space for a while where I think I need to share my story because of the things that you just shared. You know, I am married and we, we share so much of our lives through social media these days. And we've become like Peter and I, that's my husband. Um, you know, we've claimed happy hubbies and it's hashtag. And then you walk into a room and people know who you are and what you're doing. And so now I think God is showing up in this way that I've been resisting for so long that he is telling me, okay, you need to be more accountable. Like I've given you these gifts. We've been walking together, but you're not challenging yourself and you're not sharing it and, and providing that hope and that love for the people that might need it. And I think very specifically, I, I see it in the, the LGBT community still. I mean, it's still very real. Like I know that for me, that that was, I leaned on drinking. I, I've leaned on sex to figure out who I am in or to avoid who I am even. And I see that happening still. And especially when you get messages from um, random people saying, thank you and Peter for just being yourselves because we didn't know it was possible to be in a same-sex relationship and be healthy because it's not what's happening and it still has, isn't happening. And, and I see so many young people or people my age or people older that are stuck and, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that they don't know God it is heartbreaking that they don't know themselves. It's heartbreaking that they don't know that, that there is a space for them and a, and a place for them to belong. Um, and I'm just hoping that by sharing that I can um, build that muscle to keep moving forward in my own recovery um, because I felt a little stuck for a while. Well, you not only have a story of healing, but you have a story of hope. You know, that anybody who is feeling lost, who is feeling like they don't belong and they don't really know what to do or where to go, that, that, that there is hope and that there is a God who loves them and has been there even in the midst of darkness, has been there probably pulling on their heartstrings right now. And, and you are an example of somebody who listened, who, who said, okay, I'm open, I'm listening. I accept, I love, and I choose to give back in that way to others. Yeah. And, you know, you just reminded me, you know, I, I, I'm sharing with you that it's about those that are feeling the way I feel or that, that have gone through similar, you know, experiences. But I, I'm also forgetting the, the complete other audience of people of who don't know, like, what, we're going through. I, I remember one of our dear friends, um, I remember sitting in a car. I, actually, let me go back. I just remember when I, meeting this person, feeling like we're never going to be friends. There's no way that the two of us are going to be friends. I could just feel that energy that I don't have a place in her world because I'm, you know, I'm gay. And, and, and right away that triggers all of those past hurts and feelings from me. But then because of this walk I've had with God, because of recovery, because of all of these healings and forgiveness, I'm like, well, I can make a space for her, you know, and fast forwarding, um, I was completely right. Like that, that, that person had, did not have that space, but I, I kept showing up and God kept showing up. And I knew that she's a person of God. And I said, if there is a God, then God is going to bring us together. Right. And I will not forget, I'm going to get teared up, but I remember sitting not too long ago in the car with this person, just asking, you know, where, 
where do I fall into your world and with being gay and identity and, and, and my marriage and all this other stuff. And it was God showed up in that moment because I knew it was uncomfortable. I knew it's something that had been weighing on both of us in different ways, even though we have created this friendship that is just so deep and so rich and, and, and giving and taking. And, um, and I remember her saying, you know, I don't necessarily have the answer. And I don't, she said to me very uncomfortably, I don't think that you're supposed to be married to the same sex still, but all I do know is I meant to love you and to love Peter. And, and that was okay, you know? And I think that is the other reason that I'm supposed to be sharing my story because there are so many people out there in that world, in the world who need to know that, that that it's okay like we don't have to have the answers let god have that answer you know that he brought us together for a reason and be open to that and um i just thought you just reminded me of that and i wanted to share that mm, absolutely that's beautiful well before we close out tonight or today is there anything else that you want to mention or stirring within your heart um you know I think for me, I just want to share with the, with with your listeners that the hardest relationship that you're going to have in this world is with yourself, I think, because there's so many distractions. And in that relationship, and if you want it to work, you you have to partner with God. And and that's for higher power, whatever, however you want to identify. Um, it, it just can't be just of you. And I think that people need to know that um, we are created to be so much more. And you can only do that if you're willing to be authentic. And it's it's work. It's work. And it's work every single day. And there's new challenges. And there's, there's just so many obstacles. But I think that if you can lead from the heart, and if you just choose to like make your choices out of love, you're going to win. Mic drop. Thank you again, Carlos, for sharing your story so vulnerably vulnerably <laughs> and authentically. I know that there's a lot of people who will be touched and want to continue um, getting to know you. So check Carlos out at Facebook. All of his links will be in the show notes and description box below. And let him know how his story impacted and touched you today. Thank you so much for listening today. Head over to denisewalsh.com. Enter your email to subscribe to our list and I'll be sending out an early bird special coupon. 50% off, in fact, of the Dream Life Workbook when it is launched in just a few months. So if you want to have first dibs, let's get your name on that list. Thanks again. I so appreciate you and remember to dream big. 